San Francisco's police department is at the verge of losing significant number of police officers. Poll from our uh, police union uh, that they did, and it talked about people thinking about leaving and the plans on leaving. And uh, right now they're coming back with 54% are saying they're looking to leave or planning to leave in the near future. According to San Francisco City's controller's office, the median response time of a police officer to urgent priority aid calls has increased by roughly 30% since 2050, from about six and a half minutes to eight and a half minutes. Is policing becoming impossible in San Francisco? We've had incidents where entire watches uh, from the station have been basically stuck or relegated back to the station because we have to review force on something that used to not even be reportable at all. And now we're all stuck at the station doing administrative tasks. According to SFPD, only 8.1% of all crimes and 3.5% of property crimes in 2021 led to an arrest. This is the lowest arrest rate in 10 years. You may wonder, how will this impact the city? We all feel it, we see it every day. We see the city you know, kind of falling apart and going down into the gutter and we're you know, basically the last line of defense for civilization when it comes to that. I sat down with Richard Sabati, sergeant from San Francisco's police department. Today, he will discuss with us his insider perspective on why SFPD is facing such a big exodus and what it will take to turn things around. I'm Siamai Korami. Welcome to California Insider. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ben. We want to talk to you about San Francisco and the police. Over 50% of the police officers are planning or thinking about quitting in the next year. Is that true? Yeah, so that came from a poll from our uh, police union uh, that they did, and it talked about uh, people thinking about leaving and the plans on leaving. And uh, right now they're coming back with 54% are saying they're looking to leave or planning to leave in the near future. Why? They've made policing untenable up there. It's, uh, it's very sad, but the administrative burden being put on everybody uh, is very high. So in, in addition to doing your normal patrol work, you have a lot of admin work that you have to do on the backside, which I think we're all pretty used to. But um, as that's grown, now you have chances for errors to occur and uh, discipline to come down from that. And it's made people, yeah, it's not really what people signed up for is the paperwork side. And when that becomes more than the policing side, uh, it gets frustrating for especially newer people. Can you explain to us some examples of how this works? Sure. Um, so when you arrest somebody, you're going to have to write a police report about what happened. Um, in addition to that, you know, you have to book your evidence, you have to fill out your card to book somebody at county jail. Um, right now, due to the COVID restrictions that are still in place, even the process of booking somebody at county jail ends up frequently in hospital watches, where you have to take the person to the hospital and watch them there for hours and hours on end. So it's gotten frustrating for people, especially newer people who sign up for the job who want to go do police work to now be stuck either behind a computer typing about what they did or sitting with the person they arrested for hours, days at a time, um, because of you know, kind of these new restrictions that just keep adding to the uh, workload. What are some of the examples of that? What kind of people do you guys deal with on a day-to-day -day basis? So in San Francisco, for most misdemeanors, they're citable, so they'll never get arrested. So they, they get arrested, but their arrest is a ticket saying they promise to appear to come back um, in court. but. For felonies, they'll get arrested. They'll go through the process. So they'll get arrested. They'll go to the probably the local station first, get processed, go to county jail, and then they'll wait at county jail until 
uh, they get their court date. But for a lot of people, due to the kind of the, the backlog and the courts are in the uh, jail system and the hospital, a lot of people get shipped to the hospital or are stuck waiting at the station for hours. So we used to only have people there for a couple hours. Now we've had people there for days. Why would they go to the hospital? Is it because they had a drug overdose or some other issues? Or Yeah, so our Department of Health regulates that and they have a nurse at jail who decides if someone's healthy enough to go into the jail or if that person needs to go to the hospital first. Um, it can be something as, you know, like high blood pressure or you know, uh, sugar is off. So it could be some kind of diabetic issue. Uh, or it could just be that their behavior is something that they can't deal with at the jail right now and they think it's some kind of maybe psychosis or something. So now they're stuck at the hospital with us waiting there, further depleting our resources on the street. And then, yeah, now you're also frustrated because you're stuck at the hospital instead of doing police work. Now tell me about your resources on the street. You guys are short staffed currently without losing this. Yeah, so uh, we're very short staffed. Uh, we have been consistently under 2,000 members uh, working in the city. I think our high water mark was 1869 and that was in 2019. Uh, since then, our most recent published number is 1639. That was at the beginning of this year. Um, so that's full duty sworn police officers in San Francisco. So 1,639 is pretty low. Um, it hasn't been that low in over a decade. Um, and it, there's no increase, it just keeps getting smaller. So while we hope to get more people, it's not really the reality right now. Our academy classes are attracting fewer and fewer people. The last three classes have had 20, 17, and 15 people in them. So we're looking at, in, that, in those three classes, we have 52 people. The department expects about 67% to pass and become full-fledged police officers. So that ends up about 35. And to put that in perspective, last, in the last two weeks, when we hit the end of the fiscal year, where we have most retirements and resignations, we had 40. So that's basically eliminated all of our hiring gains for the past year plus. So if you lose more team members, what can happen to your, to your workloads and your colleagues? Um, well, you know, there's doesn't seem to really be a plan to help address this right now. We, we are losing both people who are retiring, um, of whom there's a lot. We have the 1994 crime bill passed, and we hired a lot of police officers in San Francisco using the money from that. And those who were hired then are now coming up on 30 years, which is their max benefit for their pension. So basically once they're topped out at 30 years, which will be somewhere in 2024, 25, uh, then we're going to end up with a problem because there's no reason for those people to stay anymore. So they've hit max retirement benefit. In theory, they should all retire and leave. And if they do that, we haven't done anything to address that or try to hire to backfill them, let alone the people we're losing through attrition and finding other departments or other lines of work. The SFPD currently has 2,023 sworn officers, the lowest number in the last two decades. So not only is morale low, a recent poll by the San Francisco Police Officers Association, which 916 people participated in, shows that over 55% of their members who haven't applied to another department are planning to leave soon. This alarming statistic suggests that staff numbers could continue to go down unless something changes. Police Officers Association President, Lieutenant Tracy McRae said, that's a very daunting number because that tells me roughly 400 people could leave this department. 
So what can happen on the streets? Uh, how is it like being on the streets and as a police officer and having less team members? Uh, it's very difficult. Um, like I talked about the administrative burden when you have somebody you know, doing police work and, getting, and arresting people, now they're off the street because they're dealing with the person they've arrested and the paperwork that comes with that. So that's one less person you already have on the street. But then as we're working more and more and you know, getting toward burnout where cops are working, you know, I know it's kind of like unlimited overtime right now, whether you want to do it uh, you know, voluntarily because you're looking to make more money or uh, for younger people, they're falling into a lot of the mandatory overtime that's starting. It's you know, going to create burnout, uh, poor decision making, higher rates of you know, injury, and then people just ultimately leaving because it's not what they signed up for to work you know, indefinitely. Now, you mentioned the administrative work that you guys have to do. Can you tell us what is it like today versus how it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago? Mm. How is it different? So when I came in in 2008, you, know, you still had to write the police report and do the booking and the evidence, which was kind of normal practice. Um, but our policy has just gotten longer and longer. So the police commission in San Francisco controls our policy. Um, they can choose to amend policies, throw them out, change them, do whatever they need to. Uh, and then the chief of police can alter policies you know, on a temporary basis. But when it comes down to it, it's all up to them. So we've been adding more and more policy lately. The, the newest, biggest change was 5.01, which is our, uh, our use of force policy. Uh, when I first came in, it was about, I want to say, six to eight pages. Uh, in 2016, it became, uh, I believe, 16 pages, and now we're up to about 21 pages. So that's 21 pages of things that an officer has to know all the time at the moment when they're about to use force, because if you run afoul of it, you know, you're subject to discipline, maybe even criminal uh, liability. And when you follow this 21, afterwards you have to fill out forms to show that you did or? Yeah, so the, the newest change with the new 5.01 is they've lowered the standard for what is a reportable use of force. So before, um, reportable uses of force used to be anything that basically caused injury and then using any one of your force options like you know, your stick or uh, you know, firearm obviously or any of those, but now the the threshold has been dropped down to uh, any force that you have to use to overcome any level of resistance. So we're talking about, you know, somebody goes to pull away from you and now you had to pull them back. Well, that was force you had to apply to somebody to overcome their resistance. Now it's a reportable use of force. So something that was not reportable at all, you know, uh, back two months ago is now reportable. So it requires, requires a police report, a call out to your sergeant, who then has to review what happened and evaluate if the force fell within policy. And that includes watching all of the body-worn camera footage um, and interviewing witnesses if necessary and uh, other officers that were there. So we've tied people up on something that used to not even be reportable uh, for this new policy that now since almost all police actions are gonna be reportable if somebody tries to pull away or anything, uh, now people are stuck doing large sums of paperwork that were never necessary before. And how does it impact San Francisco's streets as a result of this? Is there any impact that you see? Yeah, fewer cops on the street. Uh, there's just, you're, once you have a reportable use of force incident, now you're basically pulled off the street so we can figure out if 
you've met the uh, or if you fell within policy right judgment. Yeah. So then once that determination's made, then you go back to work. But for that time period, however long it takes to review video and see what happened, that officer's off the street, which means there's fewer officers on the street. If they get into some use of force, we've we've had incidents where entire watches uh, from a station have been basically stuck or relegated back to the station because we have to review force on something that used to not even be reportable at all. And now we're all stuck at the station doing administrative tasks. One other feedback that we've gotten from the community is that the police doesn't engage as much anymore in a lot of certain types of crime. Mm -hmm. Is this part of the cause of it? The administrative burden that's on you guys, does it make you guys not want to engage in certain circumstances? No, I mean, I think it, people go into a situation knowing that now if they engage on something that would have normally not been either reportable or would have been you know, like a low-level thing they would have engaged on, now it comes with all these tasks and administrative burden that'll take them out of service for a while. So maybe they're a little more hesitant to go engage on that. So it seems like you have this big administrative burden that, that's on, their, on the department. Is that affecting the trust? Do you guys feel like you're trusted by your leaders and the community? I would say no. Um, there was a recent survey uh, that the department did. They haven't really released the results of it or the findings, but in a police commission hearing recently, uh, they posted and talked about some of the issues in there. A lot of it dealt with internal trust uh, and basically unfair discipline practices where the officers felt that they were unsure of how discipline works, if it was fair at all, uh, and then a lack of trust between the higher ranks and the lower ranks in the department. And I think you have a lot of people leaving the profession, especially in our department, because they get to a point where they don't know what to do. Like they don't know, they feel like they've done everything right or what they were trained to do. And then when it gets reviewed by either internal affairs or the Department of Police Accountability, uh, and it comes down to some kind of discipline, they're getting kind of harsh discipline for something they felt that they were trained to do, and it may have been a training failure or something else, but they're the ones you know, wearing the burden of all that when it comes to discipline. And when the cops are unsure, they lose confidence in the way they're supposed to do things, I think that leads to confusion, which creates a breakdown in you know, morale, internal trust, and people decide to start leaving the department. Can you give us an example for our audience to imagine what, what it is like an example of a case where a police officer gets stuck in, in something like that? Yeah, so we have a, a few different methods of reviewing when, something, when we do something. So uh, in addition to internal affairs, which is our internal department organization that monitors you know, malfeasance or any kind of uh, administrative violations, uh, we have the Department of Police Accountability, which is its own separate organization authorized by San Francisco and uh, used to be called the Office of Citizens Complaints. So people can go there, feel like they're not complaining to the police department and that nothing will get done. So they'll go there and then the police department it will do, could do its own internal affairs investigation or the DPA has the power to do their investigation. So um, we have issues sometimes where, you know, you'll, you'll do a report, you have done pretty much everything right. You'll have, you might get a complaint because, you know, the person you arrested doesn't feel like they uh, should have been arrested. So they'll make a complaint to the DPA. The DPA will then take the case and they'll review body-worn camera footage, the police report, uh, any other information they have and do their own investigation. So there's been times where officers will get told by the DPA that they did everything right 
procedurally, like the police report was done correct, the arrest was okay, but maybe your body-worn camera didn't turn on right away. You should have turned it on sooner. Or um, they read this policy, of which we have voluminous policy, and they found one line that they think should have been in your police report. So now you have a problem where everything you did procedurally was okay, and you know all the actual enforcement action was okay, but now you're still getting disciplined for like a ministerial violation. Not that doing the paperwork correctly. Yeah, so it's you know almost like typo police in a way that <laughs> it sometimes occurs, and that gets frustrating for cops who feel like they've done everything the right way, and now they get still hung up on some administrative violation that they may not have even known was a, an administrative issue. One of the things you mentioned about the procedures on use use of force, you guys have a really tough job, and when things go wrong. It can be very sad. It can be really mm -hmm. bad results. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that when force is used and somebody dies as a result of it or somebody gets hurt, but it wasn't justified? Does that, does that happen much in your department or what, what have you seen? Um, no, I don't think it happens very much at all. I think uh, cases of either unjustified use of force or um, excessive force are few and far between, they're not, you know, like the, the everyday case. Most of our cases are, if they're use of force cases, are, you know, very cut and dry. Uh, the officer had to, you know, make an arrest, prevent escape or overcome resistance, and that's why they had to use force. Uh, when the cases do happen where officers act outside the law, we have, you know, a very, uh, well, up until a couple weeks ago, we had a DA that was always looking to try to get the police. and. Even now, we have an internal affairs bureau, uh, or we have an internal affairs office I within the department, and then the DA's office has their own uh, investigative uh, body that also looks into our use of force cases. So they're very monitored, um, and I, I think we haven't seen a lot of charges come out of that because we don't use force very often. We've actually been trending down for a while now, uh, and when we do, we usually we always act within policy and within the law. Do you think that policymakers ha are showing an emotional reaction to these cases, which happen once in a while, and changed the whole procedure for your work and kind of made it very inefficient or impossible to do? Is that? Um, I think part of it is some kind of emotional response where something happens either you know, locally or nationwide that looks bad on the police, so everybody wants to do something. and when you act with emotion, sometimes it's not the best way to uh, create policy. So you have that problem, and then on top of that, you have people in the police commission who have never done police work. So not to say that uh, you know, a civilian couldn't help create policy and those things, but you need a lot of you know, internal uh, response, I would say, in order to make the policy effective. And if one side is doing things without the inside knowing what's going on, then you have a disconnect where policy doesn't really make sense. And I think there's been a few times where policies come out and you know, at the station we'll get it and everybody will start reading it and you'll just start tearing apart. It's like, this doesn't make any sense. How are we gonna, how do we even do this? And it's because you know, there's a little bit of out of touch on both sides. We don't understand how policy is made and policymakers don't understand how day-to-day -day police work operates. So uh, without that connection being made, I think you have a big issue there which creates you know, policy problems. Why do you think there is this huge gap for our local police commission, I think part of it is, you know, they're political appointees and 
depending on if the mayor picked uh, the appointee or the board of supervisors picked the appointee, they may have either political aspirations or they may have some kind of you know, political leanings that are being indulged. So if you have people who you know, either don't want the police, don't like the police, making policy for the police, obviously that's going to create a problem when it comes down if the police don't even understand what the policy is supposed to be. There are some criticism of, of the police force in San Francisco. People are saying that for the amount of pay that, that San Franciscans give to the police department, they're not getting much results from this department. What mm. are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, at the same time, we're only one you know, component of the criminal justice system, so we can arrest people, but once they're arrested, it goes to the prosecution side, and if people aren't prosecuted, then they're, you know, sometimes their cases get kicked and then they go right back to the street. Other times, you know, they may take a plea deal, sometimes, for, you know, a really very low plea deal, and then they'll be back on the street. And if these people keep reoffending, now, you know, our limited resources are tied up with the same people over and over, and we have this revolving door of they get arrested, they don't get prosecuted, they come back out, they get arrested, they get prosecuted, they don't come back, or they come back out. So I think, you know, we're doing the best we can, uh, but until we start seeing some real results from the prosecution side, uh, we're going to have a difficult time doing more than just arresting people and hoping for a result that, you know, gets some teeth to it. Do you have any examples of cases like that where somebody got out multiple times and committed more crimes? Um, <laughs> a fairly recent example, actually. Uh, we have this, this person who lives on the street, um, using narcotics, he's got some mental health issues, and uh, he's big on always fighting the police. So he'll do something, the police will come, you know, we'll get in some kind of interaction with him or try to arrest him, then the fight's on, you know, some cops will get injured, he's a known biter. So uh, like he, a couple months ago, he bit one of our officers, um, pretty good you know, bite on the arm. Wow. And it went to the prosecution side, and as far as I know, nothing's happening. So then last week, we have him again, and he goes, and we get in a fight, and a couple of cops get injured. Um, he bites a couple more cops. And this is like, you know, that, those are two recent examples, but he's got a long history of fighting the police and, you know, getting there where cops now get injured. So now we have a twofold problem of more cops are getting injured, so if you were left to respond to calls. And then now you have this guy who has escalated violence, and even against the police, and now since the criminal justice system isn't dealing with him, we're just going to have to keep getting in fights with him or, you know, getting injured. When if he was taken care of on the other side, then maybe we wouldn't have this problem where he's out in society and harming other people and the police. With this movement of defunding the police, and there's voices that want to eliminate the police force, mm -hmm. and some people want to abolish the police completely. What do you think of that? What do you think the outcome of that would be? I think it's a pretty terrible idea. <laughs> um, I I know locally we have a few very vocal groups that are either talking about abolishing or taking away a lot of calls for service we do, which a lot of that is funny. I think a lot of police agree with that. There's a lot of mental health and substance abuse calls that the police get sent to, and I, I don't think that's a, really our position. I think you have health clinicians that need to be there, and you have... Uh, you know, people that deal with substance abuse, and it would be much more helpful for them to go and intervene there than the police to go. But the reality is the police are the lowest common denominator. So when all the services that the city's paying for, for 
you know, mental health services and all those, when they're all at home, they're not the ones getting the call. The police are getting the call and we're the ones forced to answer it. So um, as much as it would be nice for us not to handle those calls, the reality is until those services you know, can work and kind of respond as the police do, then we're going to be the ones handling the majority of those. Could you tell us a little bit more about what this job entails for you guys when you're in the field and you're getting these calls? Yeah, so on a typical day, uh, you'll show up, you'll do lineup. So you know, the lieutenant will brief you on kind of the day's events and what has been going on and upcoming things that we know about. Uh, then you'll go out, get in the car, you'll start pulling up the computer and seeing what calls are pending. And you just start answering calls. So uh, if there's calls pending, you know, you'll go to the higher priority calls first. If there's no calls pending, maybe you can go do some uh, self-initiated activity. So you get to go, you know, take on people or try to proactively stop crime. Um, but throughout the day, you know, you're expected to handle the calls for your area. And you may go to, like the Tenderloin's busy district, you may go to 20 or so calls in a day, which, you know, every call is, you gotta do the body-worn camera, have to record it, after the end of it, even if it's not really a, a call that's gonna be a report, now you're gonna have to go back and dock your video and label all your video correctly. So we have more admin time there. And then depending on what call you go to, I mean, you can go from, you know, some kind of noise complaint to, you know, a shooting. You can go from that to a domestic violence call. You can kind of go, you know, one down the line. And before you know it, you've gone through, you know, five or ten big calls with, you know, injuries and trauma and a bunch of other stuff that both keeps the job entertaining because it's something new every day. But, you know, it does add up to your psyche eventually. There's a lot of stuff in there. And you guys see a lot. I assume that you'll see the worst of the society. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we got a front row seat to both the good and the bad. So you get some, you know, good heartwarming things and, you know, some things that you'll keep and hopefully get you through the rest of your career to make you happy. And then you're going to see a lot of things that are, you know, pretty terrible. And I, I remember one time I went to uh, one of my sergeant's promotional things and uh, they had a, a therapist there and he was talking and he was like, all right, so let's talk about a couple things. And he brought up a few things and then I just started writing down like, random one-liners of things I'd seen or, you know, some trauma I'd experienced, you know, going to calls. And then, you know, before I knew it, it was like, you know, two pages front to back. And I was like, that's a lot of stuff to be, you know, carrying around all the time. So, you know, it does add up. You, you see a lot and you experience a lot. So it's going to add up eventually. Like what type of things? You know, car crashes, uh, shootings, stabbings. So you see people dying or? Mm -hmm. or yeah, you see you know, all the, all the good stuff of happiness, and then you see all the bad stuff where, you know, you're experiencing someone's worst day of their life, and you're also taking that on too, because now you've experienced the, the trauma of, you know, watching someone's loved one die in front of them, or watching, you know, someone die in your arms, and, you know, it's gonna be, it's gonna stay in there. <laughs> How do you deal with that? You gotta talk to somebody. Luckily, I have a great wife who, <laughs> I keep some stuff away from her, obviously, because I don't <laughs> need to offload that on her, but, uh, you know, luckily we've always been very open about that and you, you need someone that you can talk to, whether it's, you know, spouse, family, coworkers, but you need to be able to talk through some of the things that you go through because otherwise, uh, you know, it can make you go crazy. So has it become a thankless job to be a police officer in San Francisco? Sometimes, yeah. Um, it gets frustrating. Uh, we have a very vocal group that's, you know, not very happy with the police in pretty much any regard. And, uh, you know, they're the ones that get the news coverage and other things. So it gets 
tough when that's out that outweighs which what I think is the, the large majority of city residents who you know actually want a police department and want the police to be able to do their job um, so it does get frustrating when one voice is outweighing what it feels like is the majority of the city that actually wants us and needs us there to the team members that you have in your team that are not planning to quit why are they not doing that? Why are they continuing? Because it seems like a very difficult role to play now. Yeah, I think you have a mix of people who are very tenured. So, you know, they know what they have here and they don't want to leave. And, you know, they're, they're getting near retirement. So now they're basically too, too far in to leave. Um, and then you have people who grew up in the city like me, who this is, this is home. So, you know, you don't plan on leaving. And then you have newer people who, you know, they're kind of free agents. They just started in police work. So San Francisco hired them. San Francisco's been paid to train them. So they can get trained there, get some big city experience. And then after that, you know, well, this other department closer to home because I have to live far away because the cost of living in San Francisco is so high. Uh, they're offering me, you know, similar package or similar amounts of money. And I can move over there, have less of this, you know, uh, administrative issues and political issues to deal with. So a lot of people are then taking that route. Now you have become pretty vocal on this, like you've been talking about this writing opinion pieces and why are you doing this? Uh, somebody has to. <laughs> uh, it's, getting, it's gotten very frustrating, you know, personally for me living there and I have a lot of family in the city. It's gotten very frustrating to watch, you know, my department just slowly fall off into obscurity. Uh, we have you know, what was almost 2,000 members dwindling down to 1,600, and you see the results of it on the street with just crime uh, exploding. You know, the, 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 the numbers that, you know, they talk about on TV may be a little bit different, or they say, oh, crime's down, and they can play with, you know, stats all they want, but on the street every day, it's, it's getting worse, and it's going to continue to do so unless we have a change where the police are empowered to go, you know, Go be the police. <laughs> Do you ever fear that there might be retaliation from your, your department or the leaders of the city? Yeah, I fear it a lot, but now I've gotten to the point where we've said nothing for so long and this is where it's gotten us. If I say something and I end up getting in trouble for it, I mean, I don't think you get in trouble for the truth. So <laughs> if the truth needs to be heard, then uh, you know, I guess I'll, I'll take that and I'll wear that. What about your colleagues? What do they think? Most of them are very happy that at least someone's speaking up uh, because we all, we all feel it. We see it every day. We see the city, you know, kind of falling apart and going down into the gutter. And we're, you know, basically the last line of defense for civilization when it comes to that. And it's very frustrating for, for them. So I think they're happy that someone is speaking up and hopefully they have an outlet. Is there any hope or any way for San Francisco to change course? Is the city leaders, the leaders, can they do anything? I mean, I think that's what everybody's just left with is hope that it will change. But in reality, there needs to be a large cultural shift. Um, for decades now, San Francisco has embraced progressive politics, which, you know, does have some features that are maybe beneficial, but we're basically the crown jewel of progressism, progressivism in San Francisco. Um, we've had one party rule there. The Democratic Party's controlled San Francisco almost exclusively since 1964, was the last Republican mayor. So when you have that kind of one party, you know, group thing for a long time, you end up with, you know, these political issues that are happening now. And 
if there's no outside voices, you know, you know, trying to call time out and say, hey, something's wrong here, we need to stop. Um, until that starts happening, which now maybe is becoming more apparent and there are some changes occurring. Um, but until that really starts, it's gonna keep going down this way. Now, do you have any other thoughts for our audience? Um, <laughs> I really hope San Francisco changes. I really hope it turns around and is the place I remember it growing up and the place I really want it to be. Um, but for right now, until we have some you know, big political changes and basically the will to want to change and to be the place it should be, uh, unfortunately, I think it's, it's gonna get worse. You have lived in San Francisco all your life, right? Your, your, mm -hmm. And your parents and grandparents, right? Is that, yeah. so can I've you, what do you remember San Francisco as? What was the San Francisco as you grew up? Uh, it was a great place to grow up. It was safe. You know, we had kids that played on our block. We can go hang out and have fun. And now it's a place where you, know, you don't see kids as much. There's, you know, the, the native population is, you know, dying off or moving out. So you have, you know, fewer children there. I think San Francisco has more dogs than children now which is, you know, sad. So it's, it's becoming harder to raise a family there, which, you know, then makes it harder for, you know, well-established roots to grow and to make it the city I remember. Richard Sabadi, Sergeant mm -hmm. in San Francisco mm -hmm. Police Department. It was great to have you on California Insider. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much.